Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listeners. Today's episode of the Social Work Podcast looks at addressing suicide risk in schools. Oftentimes when we think about kids who are suicidal, we think about hospitals, you know, emergency room visits. We think of outpatient therapy. We think of maybe group or family. When we think about kids in schools, we think about standardized testing. Uh, Sadly, more and more these days, we, we think about the mass shootings. But one of the best places to address suicide risk is actually in schools. And so I was so excited to speak with two of the world's leading experts on youth suicide in schools, James Mazza and Dave Miller. Jim is at the University of Washington and the director of their school psychology program, and he's the past president of the American Association of Suicidology. Dave Miller is at SUNY Albany in the school psychology program, and he is the president-elect of the American Association of Suicidology, as well as the author of the highly regarded text, Children, Adolescent Suicidal Behavior, School-Based Prevention and Intervention, published in 2011 by Guilford Press. I spoke with Jim and Dave in April 2014 at the American Association of Suicidology Conference. We talked about what's known and what's not known about what works to address suicide risk in schools, some of the barriers to implementing effective suicide prevention programs, and the value in framing school-based suicide prevention and intervention in a broader context, not exclusively talking about suicide, but talking about it in a broader context, both as a way of selling the idea to school administrators and parents as well as thinking beyond just addressing students in a suicidal crisis. And as an example, Jim talked about a curriculum that he's been developing that uses concepts from dialectical behavior therapy, which is one of the empirically supported treatments for addressing suicide risk in adults and children. And this curriculum is intended to improve emotion regulation and other issues in all students. Now, a couple of notes about the interview. I recorded it in my conference hotel room, and you might hear some street noises in the background. Uh, Right before we recorded the interview, we had been in the hotel lobby talking with Marsha Linehan, who developed dialectical behavior therapy. And this is important, not because I'm wanting to name drop here, but because you'll hear Dave and Jim reference Marsha and the conversation that we were just having with Marsha downstairs. It all made great sense at the moment, but could understandably be a bit confusing if you weren't with us downstairs with Marsha Linehan. At one point, Jim mentions the curriculum that he's developing with his wife, but he didn't mention her name. And she is uh, Dr. Elizabeth Dexter Mazza, a licensed psychologist and an expert in dialectical behavior therapy. And now, without further ado, on to episode 86 of the Social Work Podcast, Addressing Suicide Risk in Schools, an interview with James Mazza and David Miller. Dave, Jim, thank you so much for being here on the Social Work Podcast and talking with us about uh, schools and suicide. And one of my first questions for you is, what is it that works? So... What works is uh, a good question. Uh, you know, I think it's still open for debate. The 
um, words that I'm hearing of what works would suggest that we've got an effective way to do this that everybody knows about, which we don't. And so I think that we as a field are still struggling with trying to provide schools with a intervention or prevention program that we know will be effective and schools are struggling to figure out a way to how to implement some of these issues or programs that look at high-risk kids. So, so with the programs like the screening programs and the prevention programs that we've right. heard about, right. you're saying that there's not much evidence to suggest they work? Well, we have evidence to suggest that social-emotional learning curriculums, what are now deemed SEL curriculums, uh, do pretty well. Uh, they work with some of the uh, violent behaviors that work with some of the bullying, so programs like Second Step and Steps to Connect and, and other ones um, are effective for certain tailored uh, behaviors that they are focusing on. What they don't focus on are some of the mental health issues such as suicide and suicidal behavior, depression, and so forth. I think one of the other issues too is when we when we talk about treatments, like Jim said, what there's a big movement, of course, across psychology, including school psychology, for evidence-based interventions or evidence-based treatments. And as Jim said, we really don't have that now. It's 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 or at least yet. Um, we I think we do have promising approaches, but you know, just as one example, um, Jim was part of a study that I did a few years ago where we looked at. Um, methodological issues in school-based suicide prevention programs and one of the things we found was a we don't know a lot about what works in school-based suicide prevention uh, B there's not all that many studies in that topic anyway and C many of the studies that have been done aren't all that great um, so when you put all those things together it, it's it's a rather um, frustrating outcome we do have enough information to suggest promising approaches and I and I think it's important to know that or to know that there are some things that we do know or at least have reasonably solid evidence for, such as things like um, if you present information to students about suicide, you can change their knowledge about it. Um, you can change their referral practices. You can, they, after uh, some sort of curriculum programs, students will often report, uh, or schools personnel will often report more students coming to them for help, typically for their friends rather than themselves. Uh, but what we don't have, the, kind of the magic bullet when you think about this, is ultimately we want to reduce rates of suicide, the numbers of suicide. We don't have evidence as of yet that school-based suicide prevention programs can do that. Part of the challenge, of course, is that suicide is thankfully a low base rate behavior, and it'd be very difficult to do those kind of studies. Um, Frank Zanieri and um, Phil Lazarus have done a, a few interesting things with that tracking longitudinal data over time, beginning I think in the late 80s when they had, I believe, 18 suicides in one year in the Miami-Dade School District. And they've had drops following their suicide prevention program that have continued, by the way, um, through I believe 2007 or so was the last time they collected data. They may have updated it since then, I don't know. Uh, and it's a great pilot study, if you will, but it's open to all sorts of possible biases. You could just say it's regression effects or, or other things. Um, I think it's a little bit more powerful than that, but um, they'd be the first to admit it's not a well-controlled study. You really can't do that kind of, of research, and that, that's what makes it challenging. I think, too, uh, I'm going to add, I mean, Dave's uh, spot on with, with everything he said. I think one of the challenges that sometimes people don't understand is trying to do this within a school system with personnel who are not trained 
to do these things. And the personnel that do have some of that graduate education, like our social workers, school counselors, and school psychologists, have a caseload of 1,000 to 1 or 1,500 to 1 at best. And so being able to spend time to do some of the maybe more evidence-based treatments that we know of with uh, cognitive behavior therapy or dialectical behavior therapy, the school staff, that personnel doesn't have the time to do it. And so we're at a loss for how do we do this within the schools. And we know that if we make referrals to parents to say your child's engaging in self-harming behaviors at, at risk, those parents often don't take their children to the community agencies or to the hospitals. And so there's several disconnects that happen due to the system that's there mm -hmm. and due to our uh, inability to control some of those pieces. Uh, I think Jim's absolutely right about that. There are several systemic problems. Um, even when we can be successful, there are systemic problems. So let, let me give you a concrete example. Um, I, I know, um, and Jim can tell me if these numbers are off, but we had a, uh, an email exchange several years ago in which I believe he was able to, he was able to get, which is difficult to do, um, permission from a school district to do screenings for suicide. Now this is difficult for many reasons, one of which is people uh, um, subscribe, many people subscribe to erroneous assumptions about suicide, like, well, we will quote unquote put ideas into their heads. Right. No if you ask about it, then exactly right. about it. Right. And Maddie Gould did a, a really widely cited study in 2005 that refuted that, and there's been some stuff since then that, that refutes that. But it's a hard myth to, to let go of. And when I speak to, to school personnel, I always mention that and make that a priority. But, and Jim, you can correct me if I'm wrong, this was a few years ago now, we were exchanging emails about this. I, I seem to recall that you had permission from a school superintendent to do this, yep. so you're thinking, great, we can do it. And he just said, well, the only caveat is you got my permission. You can do it. You can do it with 100% of our kids, but you got to get parent permission. And when you got parent permission, I think you got, right. what was your percentage? About 40%. Well, there you go. And I was almost more interested in the kids who didn't get the parent exactly. consent. Because the parents who consented were much more involved in their kids. And I'm concerned about the, the right. kids whose parents are not being supportive to them. And so uh, it was tough that way. Uh, to follow up with Dave's thing too is, so we have, you know, we're talking about evidence-based methodologies and we'll, we'll come up with something that really works to identify kids like screening proactively. Yet when we take screening as, an, as a methodology to a principal, they don't like it. When we take it to the school psychology field in general, they don't like it. They would rather do smaller modules that are not nearly as evidence-based that kind of just teach knowledge but don't identify the kids. And so even the school systems find screening to be too abrasive, yet it's the most effective. And, and so when you say screening, you're talking about <clears throat> like administering a couple of questions across a grade or across a school saying, are you at risk for suicide or are you depressed? Or what do you mean when you say? Cor correct. Yeah. And so in some of the screen, the uh, research that I do, I use a self-report screening protocol. Suicide being one of them, social support being another, bullying, uh, depression. And so... Uh, I use a short screening measure, the uh, suicidal ideation questionnaire, 15 item one, and which has got lights out, great psychometrics. And we know kids will tell us how they're feeling if we ask them. And that's the whole issue. We don't ask these questions. And a lot of our social workers and school psychologists and school counselors aren't trained to be able to ask those questions and then panic when the, when the answer is yes, I'm thinking about suicide. They don't know what to do. And so you know, even if we train them on what to do, we have to have community resources who are available to help these kids if we then identify them through clinical interviews that, yeah, they're at high risk. Question, and I want to follow up with the, what you were talking about before about sure. the, the parents who are not 
saying yes and this idea of opting in. But is it possible for a school, say a a small private school, um, uh, to just do a suicide screen? Like, let's say the the school counselor was interested in knowing because that person had a personal interest or there was some reason and they said, I want to screen. Should they do that? Could they do that? Is there is that an effective approach for suicide prevention? Oh, it's very effective. Matter of fact, it's in the Surgeon General's uh, report in 1999 that said screening is the most effective method to do it, and it's also proactive. So we're not waiting for someone to engage right. in suicidal behavior, which is really big. Uh, the issue becomes you're going to get some parents that are going to have some backlash. Oh, how come you're asking these questions? We didn't know that. I don't want my son or daughter answering those questions. And so from my perspective, and this is what I teach, I believe we should be doing screening to for all the kids. They should be able to tell us each year or twice a year how things are going in their lives. And to me, that should be part of the education curriculum, not something separate, not something that's tangential, and not something that says, oh, parents, you have to opt in. I, I don't buy that model because we lose too many people. One of the challenges I think you have with that logistically, I, I agree with everything Jim just said, um, with screening in particular, is when you look at sort of um, uh, court cases um, that have dealt with various things that what schools can and can't do. I mean, if you think about it, a teacher can come in and and it's not like the teacher needs parent permission to do a peer-mediated intervention or cooperative learning. They can do whatever they want, but, well, within reason, but but they can, they're not constrained precisely because all of this is serving a quote-unquote educational purpose. So I can teach math using group format, individual, whatever, almost an infinite number of variations. And I don't even, and most teachers wouldn't even think about getting parent permission. Indeed, they wouldn't need it. But because something like this is, unfortunately, currently atypical and not considered part of the regular educational curriculum, I think if you did it and a parent wanted to raise legal actions against you, they'd probably be able to make a good case. Um, I'm not happy about that, but I think they could. I think the other thing, too, is, and in, in, uh, just to pick up on what Jim said about screening, because I, 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 I've gone through quite an evolution with screenings. I agree completely with Jim that, and as he pointed out, the Surgeon General, better authority than I am, obviously, um, thought that this was the best way to go, and in large part from what, as Jim said, it's proactive. The other approaches, like curricular approaches, presented students, in-service training, require multiple things happening in order for that kid to come out. The information has to be shared. People have to be listening to the information. They have to be alert to the signs. They have to notice the signs. They have to go to the school counselor, psychologist, social worker, and say, hey, this kid over here, he looks like he might be suicidal based on the information shared. Lots of stuff. Whereas proactive stuff, as Jim said, it, it's surprising. The research, a lot of times, kids won't just come up to you and say, gee, I'm feeling suicidal. But if you ask them, they will, to a surprising degree, not universal, to a surprising degree, be honest and say, yes, I am. But it's almost like, you've got to ask me, I'm not going to tell you. Correct. And a screening approach is nice because it does everybody in the population. So from that perspective, it's clearly the way to go. And I, I don't see any suicide researcher or anyone interested in suicide prevention that would disagree with that. The problem that you run into, I think, and when I compare my earlier writings, which were unequivocally positive towards screening, to my later writing on it, where I'm still unequivocally positive, but with the caveat that's like, if you want to do this, this is a difficult thing to do. You got to be be ready to take this on. And Jim touched on a few issues. One is they are, you know, I've done a series of acceptability studies, and every single 
population we've surveyed, school superintendents, school psychologists, high school principals, students themselves don't like screening programs as much as these other programs that don't work as well. That's one big problem. Another problem, though, is even if you were able to do it, even if you were able to do it, you run into the situation Jim did where, well, I might get a, a fairly small percentage of the parents who will agree to do it. Then let's take it further, though. Okay, well, let's say you're still able to do it. Well, now, how often do you do it? Do you do it once a year? Do you do it twice a year? What about the kid who's suicidal in October, but not in November? And you did the screening in November, not October. Um, now, it, it waxes and wanes, too, so it's a difficult issue. And as Jim pointed out, okay, let's say you do catch these kids. Well, now, it's not just enough to identify them. You've got to be able to treat them. Or, or find some sort of resources or follow that are available. Even if, or follow even, because up. most of the school personnel aren't going to be trained to do right. suicidal treatment, suicidal behavior treatment. It's most likely going to be at a, a tier three level, what I call actually tier four. They're likely going to need outpatient therapy from somebody that's really uh, trained well in high risk adolescence. Ooh, tier four, okay. I like that. So I've heard that before. Tier four. So yeah, what? sorry. Okay, yeah. So, so tier one, two, three is sort of like right. that. Well, that. so when I when I do my teaching and in the curriculum that I've been uh, developing, you know, we have have what's called response intervention or, or multi-tier systems of support and we have tier one tier two tier three yet we know even when you go to your special ed classes and the, and the kids that are in the emotional behavior disorder classrooms that there's still not likely enough intense services that are there so for some kids for some kids yeah. or in some kids have to be sent to like residential treatment schools or whatever else so I call tier four outpatient that the school personnel can no longer provide the services that are needed for the current referral issues of the current risk level of the child. So tier four becomes outpatient, tier five becomes residential school, and tier six is hospital. That's really interesting because as you're talking about tier one through six, you're still conceptualizing within that educational framework. Yeah, absolutely. As opposed to we've got universal, you know, selective, you know, tertiary, whatever, and then we send them out That's and right. we're no longer talking about school, we're talking about other, but that really, encompasses it and where and where uh, I have been trying to advocate strongly and we don't have this this is another systemic issue is once they go to tier four and tier five tier four and tier five often don't talk to the schools so the kid mm -hmm. is at this high getting all these needs met and then they come back to the school at tier one and you're like that is a complete setup you can't transition right. a kid from tier five or tier four all the way back to where there's absolutely no problems that doesn't happen that way we have to get them back to tier three and so the language that's being used in Tier 4, Tier 5, needs to be language that carries over back to Tier 3. And that's a strong reason why the curriculum that my wife and I are developing with a couple of other authors is using dialectal behavior therapy skills and terminology and strategies because if kids need that support at Tier 4 and Tier 5, they can come back to school at Tier 3 hearing the same words, knowing the strategies, and being able to be supported with some of the strategies that they learned in Tier 4 and Tier 5. Well, part of the issue, too, is, you know, and, and that's a great illustration of things, is hospitals, for example, aren't communicating with the school people. The school people isn't communicating with the hospitals. School people often, I think, treat hospitalization overly positively. They think it's it was like, oh, he's going to get treatment. Well, it's kind of a holding tank. And the kid's going to be back in probably 24, 48 hours. So what yeah, are going to do? And, and that's absolutely right. And so what we need to start working on is a communication that goes from the tier four, tier five, tier six facilities back to the schools. And we have to get the parents involved in that. So oftentimes parents will be, yeah, my son or daughter was in the hospital for you know, uh, food poisoning when they're really there because they overdosed on drugs or they made a suicide attempt. Well, 
you tell the school that they're coming back because of food poisoning, the school's going to say, okay, fine, but it doesn't alert the school that to any of those needs that were really there, and that doesn't make sense to me. And so the parents are setting their own child up, which I'm sure that they love, and they're trying to protect them by saying food poisoning because they don't want them to be harassed for making a suicide attempt, yet it really, in the long run, is uh, defeating the purpose. So you guys have been talking about some amazing things. Let me just make sure that I'm getting all this. Okay, so I start out saying what works. And one of the things that seems to work is screening. We've talked about there are a lot of issues. Parents don't want to do it. Administrators say that's fine, but parents need to opt in. When do you do it? How do you do it? And then once you do it, what do you do with the folks that are kids are identified as at risk or actively suicidal? And then... Once they get treatment, there's no continuity of care between the schools and the providers. And one of the things that you started to talk about, Jim, was this program that you're doing where you teach terminology and skills that could bridge that gap. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So my wife and I, uh, Heather Murphy, and then uh, Alec Miller and Jill Rathis have developed what we call a universal curriculum. So this is done and designed to be at the tier one level for every single person that works with adolescents emotion regulation skills we believe that all adolescents just due to the developmental stage have emotional you know roller coaster events and struggles that happen just due to growing up right and so we believe that the skills that are a part of dialectical behavior therapy we believe that those skills for emotion regulation distress tolerance mindfulness and interpersonal effectiveness those are the four modules we believe those skills are key supports for uh, the students. When we look at the adults who are engaging in self-harming and suicidal behavior from Marshall Linehan and from these uh, Alec Miller and so forth, is that they'll say these folks don't know these skills. And constantly I say, yeah, I, I get that, but I can tell you who your clients are going to be five years earlier or ten years early because they're in the schools. They need the skills in the schools. And at first we started to design the curriculum to be just a tier three. And then we thought, well, maybe tier two, you know, because they're at, they're at risk. And, then and by re- tier three, you mean sorry. the kids who are actively suicidal and tier <clears throat> two would be the kids that are at risk maybe because of behavior problems. Or Correct, selective like risk factors and, and so forth. <laughs> tier three, those kids that might have already engaged in self-harming behaviors or have made a, you know, a, a, a non-lethal suicide attempt and so forth and having emotional uh, difficulties. And then we began to realize that, you know, there are kids who are really smart, who have 120 IQ, who struggle if they get a B plus on an exam. We've got kids who are who are really good in school that worry about sexual orientation and then bullying. And then we worry about, we have, we have uh, some of our girls that worry about uh, getting along with others and, and the relational aggression issues and fitting in and their looks and self-esteem. And, and so I, I finally said, done. I can't think of an adolescent that couldn't use these skills. So let's put this at a universal level and we'll try to supplement some different strategies at tier two and tier three, but we've got to get the skills. We've got to get a toolbox of emotional learning to our kids so they can develop their own skills that work for them. And so the curriculum is taking the skills that are being used in DBT, which we know really is very effective, and has the kids acquiring those skills and practicing those skills in a caring environment within the schools at a general ed level. And that way each kid gets to gets to practice the different skills and sees which ones work for them. And they get to have their own toolbox that works for them. And so the kids then would get a grade for becoming a better person. So David Miller works on skills for a semester or a year 
and gets a grade on becoming a better David Miller. And Jim Mazza works on skills to be a better Jim Mazza. And there's no cheating because my issues are going to be different than his, yet the skills can be the same. And I can help coach Dave and he can help coach me in kid language, peer support, peer coaching. And our kids get grades for it. So these emotion regulation skills and the and the skills that you've you've distilled from DBT, which yep. we know is one of the the treatments with the strongest empirical base for working right. with suicidal self harming uh, adults, and there's some some support for adolescents. Um, that you have created a curriculum that is accepted by schools. We hope so, right? So, you hope so. so I, that, that was my question. Like, right. is is it something that schools are saying? Oh, this is educational, like 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 Dave was saying. And therefore, we can do it. So the, the curriculum is not even published yet. We're hoping to be okay. published by uh, the first of the year. Uh, okay. There are numerous schools that have already heard about it because Marshall Linhan's been talking about it and uh, Sean Shea and some of the other people ha- have seen the preliminaries of it. And so schools are already calling us and saying, we want it for our Tier 2 and Tier 3 kids, even though it's designed for Tier 1. They're like, we know DBT works. We have kids that are in our Tier 3 classes and our emotional behavior dis- uh, disordered classrooms that are self-harming. We want, we want this piece, and we were purposeful in bringing uh, Jill Rathis and Alec Miller on board because they have a book for suicidal behavior in adolescents using DBT. So we took their handouts with their terminology and put it into a universal level so that the seamlessness between Tier 4 and Tier 5 is going to be right there in Tier 1, 2, and 3 as well. So the kids that hear about using their accept strategies which is one of the skills, they accept strategies in their outpatient therapy. They're going to hear about accepts again if they're in Tier 3 or in Tier 2, and the teachers at the school are going to say, hey, why don't you use your accept strategies? And so there's no new learning again. It's all the same. So there's a continuity of care, continuity of language, and a continuity of practice. And so we're hoping that that's going to be helpful. I think the nice thing about that, too, though, that, and, and I'm really looking forward to this, when Jim has it, he's been, he's been talking about it and working on it for a while. <laughs> um, and and uh, But I think it's going to be great when it comes out. And um, I, I think one of the things that's really interesting about it is that, um, well, you talked about, you know, acceptability. Do you think this will be acceptable to people? That remains to be seen. That's but, right. but I think I'm personally highly optimistic about it because, when you start talking to principals about things like suicide, and they start getting nervous, it's a challenge just to talk about the topic. I don't think you're gonna face that same kind of resistance when you talk about emotional dysregulation, which they see in every one of their kids every day anyway. So that would be something like, oh, wait a minute, you mean this could affect uh, our kids' mood swings, of which tons of them have this a lot? Well, yeah, potentially, great. So I think that could be beneficial. I think, I think the other thing, too, is, is that we know that suicidal behavior is sort of the end point, if you will, of serious mental health problems. If we could magically wave a, a magic wand and reduce mental health problems, but not try to target suicide at all, I'm sure we would reduce the suicide rate. That's right. So Jim's, uh, his univer- this universal approach, I think, can have real potential effects at just reducing mental health problems and almost as a collateral effect reducing suicide. So we don't have, what's interesting is that uh, we are not suggesting that this is a suicide prevention program because it's not. And one of the problems that's systemic in our schools right now is that we have siloed approaches to mental health. We've got a depression curriculum, we've got a risky sex curriculum, we've got a uh, drug and alcohol curriculum. 
And the commonality of all those silos, and they don't talk to each other, is that adolescents are making poor decisions, right? And so we have a curriculum that helps them make better decisions. And if they can make better decisions, be less likely to come to class high, less likely to be expelled, uh, deal with their distress so that they're less likely to be uh, depressed or anxious, learn how to talk to parents or caring people without flipping them off and without damaging important relationships, they're gonna have less mental health issues. And by that alone, we think we'll reduce suicidal ideation and suicide attempts. But we make sure that we do not target suicide as, as an outcome. It's not our primary outcome. Our primary outcome is emotion regulation and coping strategies. That's yeah, I think our that, primary I think, outcome. I think that's absolutely key. And you know, and I think the other thing is, I, it's such an exciting time, I think, because you've got the stuff that Jim is talking about um, designed to reduce mental health problems. Um, and you've also have these developments that I think are increasingly gonna intersect. You see a little bit here at the AS conference now. It's a strand on positive psychology. And I think, you know, kind of flipping the equation a little bit, not trying to reduce depression, but perhaps what can we do to promote happiness, promote hope, promote optimism, right. promote gratitude so that they focus on, you know, we know people that are depressed, for example, they, they experience positive things. They just don't focus on them. When they think, they self-monitor what happened today, they remember all the crappy things, which may quite, be quite accurate, by the way, and realistic. They might not be distorting anything. Where the distortion comes in is, well, yeah, these bad things did happen. But you know what? These good things happen too, and you don't seem to be focusing in on that. And they find it very difficult to do that. A gratitude intervention, stuff that Robert Emmons has done in, uh, with adults and that Jeff Fro is now done with, doing with kids. I don't know if you've seen some I of have, I have not. It's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. He focuses on, you know, essentially what they produce gratitude journals, which is basically like, think of three things that you felt grateful for today and write about it and think about it. It's, it's something that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Um, and to think about those things kind of gets you in a positive mindset and you develop more realistic things. And Barbara Fredrickson's work on positive emotions where she says, she calls it kind of a, a broaden and build approach that when you start experiencing positive emotions, it's almost like a runaway train. It just, it just builds on and builds on it. So I think that stuff, and it's in its infancy, positive psychology is in its infancy, and very few people are making that link to things like suicide and mental health problems, but it's starting. Um, and I think that's a, I mean, who knows? We'll have to see what the data say, but I think that's a pro, the, the things like the things Jim's doing and, and positive psych approaches have a real potential in this. And one of the things that I know uh, they have a huge advantage of right from the get-go, as Jim pointed out, is that I think they're gonna be much more acceptable to parents, teachers, and school administrators. And you need that first, because even if you have the world's best intervention, if it's not acceptable, it's not going to be implemented. Right. It's not going to be implemented, it's not going to be successful. So you need acceptable treatments, and I think the stuff he's doing is going to be highly acceptable. So let me ask, Jim, you're the past president of the American Association of Suicidology. Yes, Sam. Right. Dave, you are a board member. President-elect. Pre oh, and you're president-elect. Yes. That's right. Okay, so I'm, I'm sitting here with, like, royalty. Um, <laughs> And yet one of the, sh the, <laughs> the themes that has emerged in this conversation that's really interesting is addressing suicide risk in school perhaps is best done by not conceptualizing it as suicide risk. You, Jim, you've talked yeah, about I, I, emotion I, regulation. I, I, and Dave, you, you talked about 
um, one of the challenges of doing the work when you mention suicide mm-hmm. is that people get all up in arms. And so I'm wondering, is that, an, is that something that people should be thinking about? Like rather than thinking about we're going to address suicide risk, thinking about it either more broadly or thinking about it in a different way. Well, I, I think that I don't want to lose the fact that uh, that suicide risk is not important because it really is. You know, it's the second leading cause of death in Washington State amongst our adolescents and amongst our middle schoolers, right? So I don't want to lose that piece. Yet, I don't think then we just have to narrow our focus so much that we just look at the suicide pieces. And if you look at the risk factors that are associated with it and the uh, genetics and, and some of the other environmental pieces, you could see those lend themselves much better for interventions than just itself suicide. And suicide also being so taboo still in our culture and the parents don't want us to talk about it and the principals are afraid of uh, liability issues and so forth, we can still target the, the risk factors that often lead to contributions to suicidal thinking as more malleable and pliable to some of those interventions. And so I think our parents are a little bit more understanding of that. And I, and I like to think, and I could have rose-colored glasses on, I'd like to think that we're getting to a point now where uh, schools and states are creating social-emotional learning standards. As a matter of fact, Pennsylvania has social-emotional learning standards that match their academic standards. And that is just huge. People don't understand how important that is because now we've got a place that we have parallel standards where schools have to match both academic standards and SCL standards. And it's that place where I think that the curriculum that we've been developing is going to help states and schools match some of those standards. I think uh, I agree with all of that. And I, I, I think you can, I think in this situation you can also have your cake and eat it too. I do think we need to think in broader terms of mental health generally, of which suicide is just one aspect, the most severe aspect, of course, but just one aspect. And I do think we can kind of hit at it from a, a multi-pronged way. I agree with Jim that we can't have these different silos. We need to, we need to think about um, a more broad-based approach. And, and thankfully, a lot of these same risk factors, as Jim said, undergird all of these problems, so we can hit that. At the same time, I also agree with Jim that we, we can't uh, just ignore the suicide piece entirely. It is stigmatized, but partly the reason it's stigmatized is because we're not talking about it. We don't need to talk about it less, we need to talk about it more, but it's the way in which we talk about it. It's, it's reducing, not talking about suicide, but it's reducing the stigma associated with suicidal people. Um, and it's about reducing the stigma of mental health illness generally. And I think that um, school-based prevention programs, although you know we talked a little bit about screening, can be very powerful. Um, other programs may not be quite as effective, but they can be highly useful, and they are more acceptable to school personnel, and they don't require a whole lot of time. I, I think there's, I don't think many school officials would object, for example, to uh, having a, and it could be done in one in-service for a teacher. It's not a lot of time, but here's some myths. Here's some risk factors, here's some warning signs. Here's what you should do if you see a kid is suicidal. Here's who you should go to. Um, and, and present similar information to kids. We're not talking about something that's time or labor intensive here, but it also can help normalize the process. But, and I talked about this in my presentation the other day, you know, when you, and, and Jim knows this very well, when you look at the data on suicidal youth, it's an overwhelmingly male problem. Yes. You know, if, if we could wave a magic wand 
and reduce all male suicides across the world to zero, but do nothing to reduce any female suicides as much as we'd like to, but do nothing to them at all. We'd reduce suicide 80% worldwide. So although you know we have this gender paradox of many more girls, adolescents, women thinking about killing themselves, attempting suicide, much higher rate of boys, adolescents, males that actually do it. So, you know, I think another, you know, we were talking about reducing mental health problems. Another thing is, how can we get adolescent males, since we're talking about schools and they're the biggest, highest risk group, to seek help? And, you know, people struggle with this. The U.S. Air Force has tried to address this and done a pretty good job. The military's looking at this. Um, and I think one of the critical ways to do that is, you have got to create an environment in which kids feel comfortable talking to adults, not just about suicide, but anything. I mean, SLTB published a couple studies I saw about where they asked kids directly, what would prevent you from, if you were suicidal, what would prevent you from telling a teacher? And what, or what would prevent you from telling a teacher about your friend who you thought was suicidal? In both cases, the top answer was essentially, I don't trust these people. Well, that's a real problem. And if you create a school environment characterized by a positive school climate of connectedness, where people feel like, you know, I may not be able to go to every teacher, but I can go to Mr. Johnson or Ms. Phillips, you know, that's going to be great. And you have to have that. And I think that's where things fall down a lot, because these kids will say that, yeah, he told me he was suicidal. Well, why do you well, I was afraid to tell her. I didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, it, it's really a critical piece. And, and it sounds like that's a really important reason why not avoiding the term suicide, not avoiding the concept of suicide is really important because when push comes to shove, you actually do want kids to be able to say, this person is thinking of killing himself and I think somebody should talk to him, right? Yes. So you don't want to ignore it altogether, but it sounds like it's framing the issues exclusively around suicide is something that you see as not helpful and, and, and not not acceptable. Well, uh, yeah. Right, because I think that it, it takes away from the identity of what uh, people who are suicidal experience. It's just not the suicidal piece. They don't get there, like Dave said, uh, they don't wake up one day and just say, I'm suicidal in the next hour. That doesn't happen. And so what happens is that it's been a long road track record, years of other things that have been piling on, their supports not as strong as it used to be, their mental health issues might be stronger than they were, and then there's often a precipitating event or factor that comes and they are in this emotionally distraught situation where they have lost good cognitive skills. And so mm -hmm. what happens is their emotions make the decision. And we almost know, even as adults, when our emotions make decisions for us, we're in bad shape. That's not mm -hmm. a good spot to be. And so I, you know, I'm a suicidologist. I have been for 20 some odd years. And so we've designed this curriculum, not as a suicide curriculum, but I'm not gonna lose my my foundation, I really want to change suicidal behavior. I really want to reduce the number of kids that are killing themselves. And if I can do that in a way where suicidal behavior is not my primary outcome, but it certainly is a secondary one that I want to keep both eyes on, then I, I, how do I do that? By enhancing resiliency skills, by helping them develop coping strategies, and then working on emotional dysregulation. So better decision making. The other thing that should be mentioned here too is although there's, you know, when you're dealing with kids in schools, you're, you're dealing with this inherent tension 
because schools are primarily educational facilities, right. and you'll hear people say, well, we're educational facilities, we're not mental health facilities, as if those two things can be separated. That's part of the yeah, problem. Point, right? And I think you really have to, to, <clears throat> to promote mental health. It's not enough just to say, gee, it's a good idea to promote mental health in kids, because everyone would agree with that. They would simply say, we know, but this is the wrong venue. And I think a response would be, no, this is the right venue because you're treating mental health and academics as if they're somehow two separate constructs, when they're really, an analogy would be, they're two sides of the same coin. Depressed kids don't do as well as kids in school. It's with conduct How many conduct disorder kids do you know that are straight-A students? It just doesn't happen. So working on those things is beneficial for, from an academic point of view. I think that's one piece. The other point is, is that even for people who say, well, schools shouldn't be doing this stuff, they are. The, mo the, the large majority of mental health services provided to children and adolescents in the United States of America is in schools. People may not like that, they may disagree with that, but that's the reality, and that's probably not going to change in the near future. Um, and it's one of the reasons I think that school-based mental health professionals, whether they be school social workers or school counselors or school psychologists, as far as I'm concerned, if you want to affect young people, that's where the action is. Yep. It's not in private practice. Yep. It's not in clinics. It's not in hospitals. As important as what they do, but as Jim, using Jim's analogy, you're talking about tiers at least four, yep. five, and six, and that's that's <clears throat> the small percentage of the kids. That's the really one to two, three percent of kids. You're you work in schools. Guess what? You're dealing with a hundred percent of the kids. You don't have to go to them. They come to you. Yeah, it's right. the place to be. Totally agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the last question, if there's anything that you guys could, as, as David said, wave a magic wand yeah. and, and change at either a policy level or sort of a micro level that would improve the experience of kids who are suicidal or at risk for suicide in schools, what, what, what would it be? Wow. Waving a magic wand, huh? Um, so I have, I have uh, two thoughts, one being general, one being very specific. So uh, on the general thought, I would like to see mandated within federal law, just like we do now with uh, No Child Left Behind or other federal policies regarding academic progress, that there is part of that education is mental health or social-emotional assessments or evaluations, right? So identify these kids early. You know. It's really hard for kindergartners and first and second graders, if those schools aren't doing well, they don't trust those teachers, for them to all of a sudden, all of a sudden gain trust in middle school or high school. So we've got we've to start working that on teaching our young kids at an early level that school-based mental health is where it goes. So, you know, and I think that's really, really important, and I think that that's systemic. If I had my choice, too, on the, on the really narrow specific side, I would love to turn every bullet into a Nerf pellet. So that because guns kill so many kids so fast without an ability to rescue them, we would drop our suicide rate tremendously if bullets were simply Nerf pellets. It's a good point because, you know, we, in this conversation, we haven't really talked about means restriction. And in the context of kids, as Jim pointed out, um, just having a gun in the home is a risk factor for suicide. Right, in and of itself. In and of itself. By, the, about mental by the kid or the adult. Right. So um, it greatly increases the probability just by that happening. And, you know, uh, well, a presentation today highlighted this. When you look at, and the data is clear every year, 
Uh, the, the states with the proportionally highest suicide rates are western states. They're all west of the Mississippi River, and they're usually the mountain states where there's a high prevalence of guns. There's not much, as the presenter said today, comparing Montana to Massachusetts, uh, drug and alcohol problems aren't any much, very different between those two states. Mental health problems are essentially similar. What's the difference? Gun ownership, much higher. Well, there you go. In any school-based suicide prevention program, and this is more of a kind of a community link, but working with parents to you know, not necessarily remove guns from their home, because I think that's going to be a difficult sell in a lot of areas, but, you know, being committed to uh, giving them good information and showing them this data. It's just data. It's not opinions. It's data. And hopefully uh, sobering them, um, not literally sobering them, of course, but giving them sobering thoughts about this, about how to better store it. But to just answer your question, Jonathan, uh, I would just add to what Jim said, and we, we've sort of talked about this the whole time. I wish schools, in addition to taking more of a mental health approach, would take a public health approach in general to problems. We talk about it a lot, and it's a response to intervention approach, but you know, we have the very much approach of like, well, we're just going to do this kind of stuff, and uh, some kids will have problems and we'll try to deal with them. Instead of taking a more public health approach with is, is you know, as Jim talked about, a universal approach for all kids, uh, selected interventions for at-risk kids, and tertiary level kids for kids with problems. And then, of course, you know, if necessary, going to four, five, and six, as Jim mentioned. However, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, if we did a really good job, which we don't now, one, two, and three, we wouldn't have that many. We'd have a lot fewer kids at four, five, and six. We'd also save a lot of money, um, which is an important point as well. But just to take that public health approach and having a strong commitment to evidence-based interventions, not only for suicide, but across programs. Um, Marsha Linehan, just downstairs a few minutes ago, made a, a very compelling point. She said, you know, psychology is very strange in this, and I, I think you could add education as well, in that, you know, if, if, someone, if someone's sick with a particular disease, you can't just give them lemon drops. That's not okay. Um, you'd get sued, you'd lose, there'd be all sorts of things protecting that from occurring or correcting it if it did. But in schools, you can just kind of do this stuff that has no support. You can go see a private practice psychologist who's doing gestalt therapy or something with no evidence base whatsoever, and no one can, does anything about it. And I think Marsh's point was that there's a bar of standard of care that's pretty high, and we've got accountability that's there. In medicine. In medicine, yeah. right? And when that, when your doctor doesn't achieve that bar, there's there's a lot of consequences to be had, and and that that's correct. We don't have that bar in education. We don't have it in psychology. And right. where's the accountability? We don't have an a, an accountability piece. And so I think it's a really good point on her part to say, yeah, it seems kind of straight. You know, you look at a guy who has significant heart problems and needs surgery. He could go to ten different surgeons, and all ten of them are going to say this is the best approach. It, it's, it's not going to vary that much because this is the approach that works best. But you go to someone with suicidal ideation and you go to 10 different psychologists, you could get 10 different answers about how to deal with it. Well, they can't all be right, um, and, but we act as if they will. So, you, you know, they often say that the first step of change is, is recognizing you have a problem. Well, the very fact that we're talking about a public health model yeah, and applying it to schools means that you know, we're, we're starting to get it. We're, we may be at phase one, but phase one is better than being at zero. So it, I think it's an exciting and a promising time. And it might be that the first steps are hardest step. Once we get to an acceptance from the community, acceptance from parents, 
the culture begins to change and we get to step one, I hope that step two and step three become easier. And we've mm-hmm. seen that during other situations. It used to be 20 years ago, you didn't talk about depression. Right. You know, 10 years ago, you couldn't turn on the television without hearing an, an SSRI commercial That's or whatever right. else. And so I think that we're, we're getting there. We just have to start changing the culture. And hopefully, uh, and again, Dave and I both have rose-colored glasses. We're in this uh, as a field. It's our identity. We're hoping that we're making a difference to change that culture. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about these issues of schools and suicide. Um, I really appreciate all the research that you guys have done. Uh, I have learned an immense amount from it, and I'm very excited for the future. Dave, as you were saying, around public health and Jim, for your universal curriculum with DBT skills. I can't wait. I can't wait. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.